Almighty God, on the day of Pentecost, you opened the way of eternal life to every race and nation by the promised gift of your Holy Spirit. Shed abroad this gift throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel, that it may reach to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect for Whit Sunday, or the day of Pentecost, which is appropriate, because today we're going to turn our attention to Acts chapter 2. We missed last week uh, for obvious reasons of a hurricane. It's been an interesting arrival here in Charleston at St. Philip. So we've had fires, we've had hurricanes. I'm, I'm waiting for the rivers to turn to blood and for the gnats and all the other plagues of Egypt to come upon us. But uh, so far, we've weathered them all. So, But we are in Acts chapter 2 today. So let's just go ahead and read through the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2 and then we'll come back and look at these verses in detail. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Well, Acts chapter 2 marks the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had made in Acts chapter 1. Uh, you'll recall that following his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And at one point they said, are you now going to restore that kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you will receive power. And we said that the Greek word was dynamis, from which we get the word dynamite, and explosive power will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of of the earth. Well, when you get to Acts chapter 2, we have the fulfillment of that promise. It is the day of Pentecost. We talked a couple of weeks ago about what Pentecost was. It was the feast of, of weeks, the first fruits, really, of the Jewish season. And it took place 50 days after the Passover. Um, so we know that Jesus appeared over the course of 40 days. We said there, there was that 10-day preparation period or waiting period between the Lord's ascension and this promised gift coming. And that's what we have, the promised gift of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 2. And this gives us a great opportunity really to talk a little bit about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I think of the three persons of the Trinity, 
the one that most of us have a hard time understanding is the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Stott tells a story in one of his books called Christian Basics, not Basic Christianity, but he wrote another little book called Christian Basics. And in it, he talks about a man that he met when he was in China. Uh, John Stott was preaching over there, and he had been preaching on the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. And he had been talking about how the Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove. And after he had finished, this, this man, this, this Chinese man who was interested in the Christian gospel, came up and asked this question. He said, I understand God the Father. And he said, I understand God the Son. He said, but who is this holy bird? <laughs> of course, that's what he was thinking. The Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove. And he understood the Father, he understood the Son, but he could not understand the third person of the Trinity. How many of you are confused by the Holy Spirit? I think we are. Often that is the case. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think one of the reasons, and Stott points this out, is because the Holy Spirit of the three persons of the Trinity is definitely the shy one. Uh, he is the one who does not bring any of attention to himself. Instead, his job is really what Stott describes as a spotlight ministry. His job is always to point to Jesus Christ. And Jesus made that very clear. He said, when the Spirit comes, he will reveal these things to you. So it is the purpose of the Holy Spirit or the role of the Holy Spirit to really highlight Jesus, to draw people and attention to Jesus. So he doesn't draw attention to himself necessarily. And that's a very important point. We'll get to that later on. But it said the purpose of the Holy Spirit, his role is to draw attention to Jesus. And so he is really the shy and elusive member of the Trinity. So I certainly think that is one of the reasons why we have a hard time understanding the person of the Holy Spirit. And the other reason is because oftentimes people, when they hear that word spirit, or the older English term, ghost, sort of have this idea that the Holy Spirit is some sort of a disembodied force. Uh, some people, because when they hear that word Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, think, well, the spiritual realm or the ghostly realm, that's not real at all. And so they sort of discount the third person of the Trinity. But I think that is a huge mistake. Um, the Holy Spirit is, as we say in the Creed every Sunday, He is the Lord, and He is the giver of life. And so we need to pay close attention to the Holy Spirit, and that's what I want us to do, to talk about who He is and what He does, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing, and you've heard me say it already, is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a power. In the creed, we refer to him as the Lord and the giver of life. And interestingly enough, in John's gospel, the Holy Spirit is referred to four times by the emphatic pronoun ekinos in Greek, which means he. So the Holy Spirit is a he, a person, rather than an it. All right. So oftentimes I hear Christians, even clergy say, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it will. Well, that's a grave mistake, because that's not the way the Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit at all. Just as God the Father is a person, just as God the Son is a person, so God the Holy Spirit has personhood. Now, we have to make the distinction here. Being a person does not necessarily mean that you have to have a body. I think that's why people get confused about the Holy Spirit. They say, well, where, where's his corpus? Where's his, his bodily presence? But remember, God the Father doesn't have a bodily presence either. 
And get this, there's going to come a time when you don't have a bodily presence. In that interim period between our death and the resurrection of the just at the end of the age, what? We're going to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but we're not going to have bodies per se. But that doesn't mean that we lose our personhood. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And this is borne out at several places in the scripture. One of the most powerful illustrations of this can be found a few chapters later in the same book of Acts. So we're going to skip ahead. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 2 and flip over to Acts chapter 8 for just a moment. Uh, This is the story of one of the early deacons of the church, Philip. Not Philip for whom this parish is named. This parish is named for Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the deacon that we're talking about. Uh, Two different people. But one of the early deacons of the church, along with Stephen, who was an early deacon of the church in the first martyr. We'll take the, uh, pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. For read, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip the deacon, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And that's critical. Just hold on to that. He believed. What did he believe? How did he believe? That's the big question. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. Look at verse 16. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. Did you see that there? Not it. He, the person of the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He thought this was a power, you see, that could be harnessed, that could be purchased, and then used. Rather than being used by the Spirit, it was his intention to harness this power as he saw it and use it. And what was the response of Peter? Verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said 
may come upon me. So here's an example of somebody misunderstanding who the Holy Spirit is and thinking it is merely a power, sort of like the the Star Wars movies, the, the force that sort of permeates the whole of existence and you can use it and harness it for your own ends. And the Star Wars movie, really not good theology at all, it's really pantheism, it's a good adventure story, but it's not particularly good theology. But there's the idea of this force that sort of permeates all of things, and it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Well, that is not the biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit at all. Not Simon's understanding. The Holy Spirit, as we see here in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, is indeed a person. He is a person. In fact, he's such an important person in the Godhead that of all the sins that a person can commit, there's only one that is unforgivable. And that is what? Suicide. No. Boy, it sounds like Pentecost out there. I hear you all in in, in various tongues, except nobody's here to tell me what you mean. Mark chapter 3, let's take a look at it real quick. The unforgivable sin. Wouldn't you like to know if you've committed it? Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. Who is the he? Well, it's Jesus. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemy they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. So there is an unforgivable sin. And that unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the third person of the Trinity. Not blasphemy against the Father. Not blasphemy against the Son. Those are forgivable. But Jesus is very clear. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Now that's serious business. Which means we're not talking about some sort of power. You can't blaspheme against a power. You blaspheme against the deity. How do you do that? Oh, that's another class. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you exactly what it means. How many of you are worried you might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Are we just kind of a little curious out there? Well, here's here's a comforting thought. If you're worried about it, you haven't. Okay, that, that's, that's, that's the first thing to bear in mind, um, was, if you're worried about it. When I was 12 years old and had just become a Christian, I read that, and I started thinking, oh my goodness, you know, and I was terrified that at 12 years old I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you know. Well, what does it mean? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I'm going to take you to two verses. One is the last verse of this section that we're looking at here in Mark chapter 3. Jesus said, you are guilty of an eternal sin if you blaspheme it against the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 30. For they were saying that what? He had an unclean spirit. So part of what Jesus is dealing with here is that they are accusing him 
of being possessed of the devil. He's, he's casting out demons, but they said he's only doing that because he himself is a demon. Now, why was that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, turn, if you will, to John chapter 3, and I'll show you why. John what? John chapter 3. It's a familiar section of the Bible. The most famous passage probably in all of Scripture, John 3.16. Well, we're in John chapter 3. We're going to take a look at just the first few verses. John 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, what? We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees. They are close companions with who? The scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees, they all go together. They are the Jewish religious leaders. When Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness to Jesus, he confessed a few things. He confessed, we know. Now it's interesting that John tells us that he was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, which would have been the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. Uh, we have a division of power in our government, don't we? We have an executive branch, we have a judicial branch, we have a legislative branch. And that's to divide the power so that no one branch gets all of the authority and all of the power. In first century Judaism, there was no division. The Sanhedrin was the ultimate body of authority. It was judicial, it was legislative, and it was executive. The Sanhedrin had the ultimate power over every living Jew in the world. So this was a powerful body, and we're told that Nicodemus was one of them, and he was a Pharisee. And what is interesting is, here's a Pharisee, here's a religious man, he comes to Jesus, and he doesn't say, I know. He says what? We know. We know. Well, who's the we? The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, they know that Jesus is a man sent from God. Why? Because he couldn't do the things that he were doing unless God were with him. And yet when you get over to Mark, what are they doing but accusing him of having a demon? We're going to see that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead is to convict people of sin and to bring them into a knowledge of the truth. So the Holy Spirit had already been working in their lives to convince them that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah. And instead of grasping onto that and accepting it, they refused to believe it, even though they were convicted in their hearts. And if you're convicted in your heart and you still refuse to believe, what hope is there? Sin. That's the unforgivable sin, you is see. Also apostasy? It is a form of apostasy. It is a form of apostasy. But that is exactly the problem. To be convinced by God the Holy Spirit that Jesus is who he claims to be and still refuse to receive him and to accept him. And that's why there is no forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus is the one and only Savior, the unique Savior of mankind, and to be convinced of that and still refuse to accept him what does that do? It leaves you with no hope of redemption. 
And so that's why it's the unforgivable sin. Does that make any sense to you now? So that's what's being talked about here. So the Holy Spirit is an important part of the triune Godhead. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He is the Lord and the giver of life. Now that's the person of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, There is a phrase in theology called the economic trinity, which simply means that the persons of the trinity divide up the responsibilities, divide up the duties, so to speak. Uh, God the Father, we see this in the creed, is the what? The creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who, what? For us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, on the third day rose again. So Jesus Christ is the one who comes down and redeems us by his shed blood. And who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. So the Holy Spirit has a unique role in terms of our salvation. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. But each of them have a unique role to play in that. So we're going to take a look here at the work of the Holy Spirit. How are we to understand the work of this mysterious third person of the Trinity? Well, the book of Acts, and particularly this story of Pentecost, is helpful. Because you'll notice that when the promised gift arrived, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles on this day of Pentecost, he came in the form of symbols. Uh, Symbols are very powerful things. Um, How many of you, after 9-11, remember getting misty-eyed when the American flag went up the pole? I mean, many of us did. You could not help it in the wake of the tragedies that we had experienced and the loss of life. And we saw the American flag go up the pole. Now, you ask yourself, what is the American flag? It is a multicolored piece of material, isn't it? It's an inanimate object. It is not living. It is not breathing. So why do we get offended when somebody tramples the American flag in the dust? (laughs) Why do we get upset when somebody burns it? When people refuse to stand during the playing of the national anthem? It's because we recognize that it symbolizes something greater than itself. And symbols are powerful things. Every aspect of the American flag has some sort of symbolic Importance. It, it represents something greater than itself. The red and the white stripes, the, the blue field, the white stars. Well, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles on that day, here in Acts chapter 2, he came in the form of symbols. And those symbols help us to understand his ministry. He came in the form of three symbols. The first was wind. We're told that a mighty rushing wind came and filled the place where they were staying. The second thing that happened was that tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. That's the second symbol. And the third thing that happened was what? They spoke in various tongues. So it's in light of those three symbols that we begin to have a better understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the whole process of salvation. 
So let's take a look at these each in turn. The work of the Holy Spirit in the light of wind. Uh, Wind is a very rich symbol in both the Old and the New Testament. The Greek word for wind here in Acts chapter 2 is an interesting one. It is the word pneuma. It is the word from which we get pneumonia. It is the word from which we get pneumatology, which theologians understand to be the study of the Holy Spirit. But you know that pneumonia, or pneuma, has to do with the lungs. It has to do with breath. Pneumonia is an illness of the lungs. What is interesting is that word pneuma can be translated as spirit, but can also be translated as breath, and it can also be translated as wind. It's the same Greek word, but it can be translated as wind, breath, or spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the same is true. The Old Testament, of course, is written in Hebrew. But the Hebrew word for spirit is the, is the word ruach. And that's how you, you pronounce it. It's almost as though you're clearing your throat. It's a very guttural sound. <laughs> ruach. But it is also a word that can be translated as wind, breath, or spirit. So when that great wind came and filled that house where they were saying, it was a play on words. It was the breath of God. It was the wind of God. But it was the spirit of the living God. And so you have to go back through the scriptures and take a look at where those words were used before. How was Ruach used in the Old Testament? How is Penuma used in the New Testament? Well, let's take a look at the Old Testament for just a moment. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And did what? Breathed into his nostrils the breath. The word there is ruach, the breath of of life. And man became a what? A living creature. So the image here is God taking Adam and forming him from the dust of the earth and he sort of stands there and he's a sod statue, perfect in every respect. Picture the statue of David for a moment. Perfect in every respect, anatomically correct, perfect. The perfect man. But there's only one little problem. He's not alive. He's not alive. Until God does what? God breathes into him his ruach, his breath. But that word can also be translated as what? As wind or spirit. So until God breathes his spirit into man, man does not become a living being. And this is one of the things that distinguishes man from all of the other creatures on the face of the earth. They are all what we would call animate. They are living, but they are not spiritually alive until God does what? Breathes his spirit into them. That's what's happening there in Genesis. And that gives us a little bit of insight into what the person of the Holy Spirit does. There's another illustration of this in the book of Ezekiel. 
You know this story. Go ahead. Yeah. Ezekiel. Yeah, exactly. Story of the... Ezekiel chapter 37. Wonderful story. The prophet has this vision. Ezekiel chapter 37. This is the vision that he has. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. This is a picture of Israel. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry. They'd been there for a long time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I, I love the response. And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Uh, Ezekiel was wise enough to realize this was a trick question, and uh, he was not about to be fooled by it. He says, uh, you know the answer to that. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, remember, we've talked about this before. The word prophecy or prophesy here means to preach. A prophet is really one who preaches the word of the Lord. And so this is a man who's told to preach to these dry bones. There's not a preacher in the face of the earth who's never sometime felt like that. He's (laughs) preaching to a valley of dry bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause what? Breath to enter you, and you shall live. Breath. Ruach. That same word that can be translated as wind or spirit or breath. Go and preach to these dry bones, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. There it is again. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. I preached as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, preached, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was what? No breath in them. This sounds just like Genesis, doesn't it? They are there, they, are, they, they appear to be living, but they are not alive. Then he said to me, now prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath. And so I prophesied to the breath. Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he had commanded me, and the breath came into them, and behold, they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. So until the breath of God came and filled that valley, the dry bones could not live. Until God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he was what? He was not a living being. We see this to be the case. Well, take a look now at John chapter 20. You'll have to get used to sort of flipping around Uh, with me in these Bible studies because as you can see we're not concerned with just one passage but rather the whole testimony of scripture John chapter 20 this is right after the resurrection John chapter 20 verse 19 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he did what? He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So you see this breath, wind, spirit. It's all this play on the words. And the most powerful illustration of this, I think, is John chapter 3, where we just were. Go back to it, if you will. The story of Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I've always had a heart for Nicodemus. I mean, he at least was open, wasn't he? He at least was willing to risk his reputation and come to Jesus. Now, he comes under the cover of darkness. But at least he comes. And I almost imagine that when he knocked on the door and Jesus or whoever answered the door, and Nicodemus just blurts out, We know. We know. I get it. Uncle, you almost expect Jesus to say, gosh, Nicodemus, good for you. Come on in here. Let's let's sit down and talk about this for a moment. But Jesus doesn't do that. He cuts right through the chit-chat and goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows. You see it there? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You've got to be born again. Now, what is interesting is in the Greek, the tense is born again like the first time. That's why Nicodemus asks the question, well, how can a man be born a second time? How can he go back into his mother's womb and be born all over again? I don't don't understand that. Because when Jesus said, like the first time, Nicodemus assumed that he was talking about physical birth. And that's why Jesus said, how is it that you're Israel's teacher and you don't get this? You're the theologian. You should know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus wasn't talking about physical birth. He was talking about the birth of mankind. He was taking Nicodemus the whole way back to the beginning, back to Genesis. Man was formed from the dust of the earth. But until God did what? Breathed into him that breath of life, he did not become a living being. He said, you have to be born again, Nicodemus, like that first time in order to become a living being and see the kingdom of God. So when we ask ourselves, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and quickens us and makes us alive and gives us that new birth without which it is impossible to see the kingdom of God. That's why the Holy Spirit, when he came on Pentecost, came as a wind. 
It was a message and a symbol that would not have been lost on those early apostles. So that's part of his work. He is the one who comes and makes us alive. A new birth is essential, without which you cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's part of what the Holy Spirit does. But he didn't just come as wind, did he? He also came, going back to Acts chapter 2 now, as fire. We're told, and tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, when you think about fire, you have to ask yourself, what did fire do? Or what does fire do? Well, we know that this was the first century. This was an age before electricity. By the way, everybody have it back? (laughs) The world's a pretty dark place without electricity, isn't it? When we closed the storm shutters at 92 Church Street, I couldn't believe how dark the house looked. It's like a tomb. And thanks be to God, we didn't lose any power. So we had lights. But I just cannot imagine how dark it would have been if we didn't have lights and those storm shutters were closed. It's a dark world. This was the first century before electricity. It was a dark world. It was a dark world physically. It was a dark world spiritually. And one of the things that fire did is it brings illumination. It brings illumination. But that whole symbol of fire is one that is rich in biblical imagery. In Genesis chapter 15, you'll recall that God appeared to Abraham in fire. He appeared to Moses in fire, didn't he? On Mount Sinai, as a burning what? As a burning bush. It's, It's a remarkable story, really. I I love the way it's described. We're told that that Moses is there sort of tending the flocks and all of a sudden this this bush, for no apparent reason, bursts into flame. And it's it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. All the foliage remains green. And the text says, And Moses said to himself, I shall go over and see this bush (laughs) and why it does not get consumed. Now, you know that's understatement. You know, when that thing burst into flame... Moses said something besides, I think I shall go over there and see what's going on. You could just imagine what he probably said at that moment. What the is that? But God appeared in fire, didn't he? We see throughout the Old Testament when the children of Israel were led by signs and wonders and the power of God's outstretched arm out of their captivity in Egypt. They were led how? By a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Again, when God came down before the people of Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 in fire and rumbling and earthquake and the people were told, do not let anyone, not even an animal, place its hoof on the mountain because this is a mountain that is holy unto God. So fire is rich in biblical history. God appeared so often before his people in the form of fire. So this tells us that, again, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, and he is appearing in the form of fire, as he had done in the past. And we said, what does fire do? Well, the first thing that fire does is that it always illuminates. It illuminates. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 8 for just a moment. This is a story that I have used recently um, in the adult form. So if you heard me talk about it there... I'm sorry, but it's a wonderful story. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. 
Now, you may notice in your Bibles that it says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. How many of you have study Bibles that say that? Most scholars, nevertheless, believe that this story, famous story, the woman caught in adultery, is part of the Jewish tradition and part of the Jesus tradition. There doesn't seem to be any dispute, even among the most liberal scholars. Uh, they all believe that this is part of the Jesus tradition. It just wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of John. So how it found its way in at some later point, we really don't know. But I think we can take it as an event that actually happened. It's completely um, in keeping with Jesus' character and his actions. So at any rate, uh, we read this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they had heard it, they went away one by one, and beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a marvelous story. Um, this woman is brought before Jesus, supposedly caught in the act of adultery. Now, I've always wondered, <laughs> where were these guys that they should catch her in the act of adultery? And it takes two to tangle. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Hold on. But absolutely. But where were they that they should catch her in the act of adultery? And the law did dictate that the man also should be stoned. But they don't bring the man. They're not interested in the man. And for that matter, they're not really interested in the woman. This is a setup. The whole point of this, you see, is to trick Jesus, to entrap him. They think that no matter how he answers, they've got him caught and they can discredit him in the eyes of the people. That's the whole intention, to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. He's far too popular. He hadn't been to any of the rabbinical academies. He hadn't had any kind of professional training. And yet he's out there preaching, and it's like E.F. Hutton. When he talks, people listen to him. He speaks as one having authority. They didn't have that kind of authority. And so they're jealous of Jesus, intensely jealous of Jesus, and they want to discredit him in the eyes of the people, and here's a way of doing it. Because this Jesus is out there preaching about grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness. But at the same time, he's out there saying, I have not come to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill it. And they're thinking, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So they bring this woman in, caught in the act of adultery. The law says that she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? No matter how he answers, they think they've got him. Because if he says, well, the law is the law, and I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, they say, ah, you see, there's all of his compassion and mercy and grace right out the window. On the other hand, if he says, well, we have to forgive and have compassion and mercy, then they said he's no friend of the law. He's no friend of Moses. So no matter how he answers, they think they've got him. So what does Jesus do? He simply kneels down in the ground and writes. What does he write? Text never says. 
Now, over the years, the English evangelicals believed that he was writing the sins of the people. And as he wrote his ver- their various sins, they saw their own sin in the sand, and they dropped their stones and they went away. I used to think that. <coughs> but then I read a wonderful commentary on this passage by a man named Ken Bailey, who wrote a wonderful book I commend it to you called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Ken Bailey is an American. Uh, he's a PhD. He was a professor for many years at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. But he spent the greater part of his life in the Middle East. His parents were missionaries, and he spent the greater part of his life teaching there in the Middle East. And so he has a unique perspective on these biblical passages and understands them in their context. And he is convinced he knows exactly what Jesus wrote. He said, Jesus wrote in the sand, she shall be stoned. Because that's what the law dictated. And he says, we know that because Jesus wrote a second time. She shall be stoned. But then we're told he knelt down and wrote something else. And Bailey said what he wrote was the next part of the passage from the Old Testament, which says, and her accusers shall cast the first stone. So if you were going to accuse somebody of so grievous a sin, punishable by death, you had to be willing to carry out the punishment yourself. That's what the law dictated. So Jesus is saying, okay, I agree, she deserves to be stoned. But if we're going to be serious about the law, you've accused her, you've got to cast the first stone. Now, here's where it gets tricky. This event took place, according to the Gospel of John, near the temple gate called Beautiful. The same place where later on in the book of Acts we're going to discover Peter and John encounter the lame man begging for alms. Silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you, what I have I'll give to you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Same, same gate. It's the main entrance into Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem and you've been on the Mount of Olives, you come down off the Mount of Olives on that Palm Sunday route through the Kidron Valley up to the Golden Gate, the gate called Beautiful. And that's where this takes place. This is at a time of the festival, according to the Gospel. So at the time of the festival, the Romans were always antsy. They were very nervous about the fact that the Jews were conspiring. I don't know if you're aware of this, But over the 100 years, the 100-year period prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus, for 100 years prior, there were on average one messianic uprising a year. So the Jews were always plotting as to how to overthrow the Romans. And when they thought about a Messiah, that's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. Drive out those pagan polytheistic Romans and restore the Davidic dynasty. So that's what they thought we were going to do. So during the festivals, the Romans would bring in extra troops. And they would always quarter them at a fortress called the Antonia Fortress, which is right there by the temple gate called Beautiful. Now, in the first century, Jews had lost the right to punish anybody for capital crimes. All right? This is one of the reasons why Jesus was not crucified by the Jewish religious leaders, but by the Romans. Because according to Roman law, the Jews could not do it. The Romans had to do it. So now picture the scene. The Roman soldiers are up there. They're antsy. There could be an uprising here. They see a group of Jewish men, religious leaders, and others gathering. A crowd is gathering. And a woman is being dragged in, and she's being thrown down. Thrown down before some rabbi, who they're a little worried about anyway, because he's claiming to be a lord. And they knew there's only one lord but Caesar. (coughs) 
And you could just imagine them up there holding on to their lances, getting a little bit nervous, calling for the officer. And the officer comes in and he takes a look and he says, we need to keep an eye on this situation. And Jesus is saying to them, all right, she deserves to be stoned. Law says you're supposed to go ahead and stone her. Do it. And those Jewish religious leaders know that if they stone her, those Roman soldiers are coming down for them. And so there's this Mexican standoff, if you will. And they look at Jesus, and they look at the woman, and they look at those Roman soldiers. And they look at Jesus, and they look at the woman, and they look at those Roman soldiers. And then they look at Jesus, and they look at the Roman soldiers, and they realize they've been had. And they drop their stones and they walk away. Now what has Jesus done? He has publicly humiliated them. This is a shame-based society. The worst thing you can ever do to a person is to shame them publicly. Americans have short memories. We forget about things. In the Middle East, they don't forget. I mean, I think Southerners understand this a little bit better than Northerners, to be perfectly honest with you. I'll never forget when I was in seminary and I told my professor that I was going to um, uh, Charleston. He said, Charleston? He said, let me tell you a story I had about Charleston. He said, I was in Charleston one time and I was visiting a church. I don't know which church it was. Um, One of the churches have a, a piece of Confederate shell in it still somewhere? Well, I guess it did or something. But he said, I took a tour and the docent was giving a tour of the church And they said that during the war, a shell came through the rafters and embedded itself at the base of the pulpit. And he said, I turned to my wife and I said, gosh, I just didn't think the German U-boats got this close to our (laughs) church. He didn't understand when he talked about the war down here. We ain't talking about World War II. There's only one war. Short memories, you see, up there, but long memories. And that's the way it was in the Middle East. They weren't going to forget this. And this marks a turning point in the Gospel of John. Because up to this point, all they want to do is discredit Jesus. Now, they're going to kill him. He has to die. So what has Jesus done? He stepped between their wrath and this woman's sin and takes the punishment on himself. And what you have there is a marvelous picture of the Gospel because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has stepped between the righteous wrath of God Almighty and our sin, and he takes that upon himself. Now, in so doing, Jesus does two things. The first thing he does is he illuminates the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That's what light does. This is one of the reasons I told you in Sunday school. When we go out for a romantic dinner, we always go where there's candlelight. How many of us want to go for a romantic dinner under the fluorescence? (laughs) why do we go by candlelight because everybody looks better in candlelight it hides your cracks your blemishes your flaws when you throw on the bright lights everything can be seen Jesus was throwing on the bright light and illuminating the hypocrisy of these Pharisees but you know light does something else it not only illuminates it does what it warms It warms. This woman's heart was warmed toward Jesus. 
And we see that happening over and over again in the Gospels where people come under the the magnificent, loving light of Jesus Christ and they find themselves warm. That is what happened to John Wesley who preached in this city back in the 18th century, the great English evangelist. Do you know that many historians say that the only reason that Great Britain never went through as bloody a revolution as happened in France was because of the influence of the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield in England. Well, do you know the story of John Wesley? It's a remarkable story. Uh, John Wesley was a child of the rectory. His father was an English vicar. His mother was actually a well-known spiritual director. Uh, Women sought her out in an age when that really didn't happen, but people sought out her advice on spiritual matters. So he was a child of the rectory. From an early age, he knew he was going to be a priest in the Church of England. He went off to Oxford, and he studied for um, the priesthood. He did extremely well. He memorized the entire book of Psalms. He he memorized by heart the entire book of Psalms. And he founded, when he was at university, a new club. It was called the Holy Club. I can tell you, I would not have joined the Holy Club when I was in college. Not, Not one of those things I would have necessarily been attracted to. But that's what he did. He founded a Holy Club at Oxford. He graduated with first-class honors and was ordained by the Bishop of Oxford. And the bishop said, where would you like to go? And he said, I want to go off to America to convert the heathens. (laughs) And evidently he felt that Savannah, Georgia was a good place to find heathens because that's where he landed, on Cockspur Island in Savannah. And he founded Christ's Church, which is the mother church of Georgia. It's the equivalent of St. Philip's down there. And he was their first rector. And he went there to convert the heathen. And he was enthusiastic and he said... But lo and behold, I went to convert the heathen and discovered that I myself had never been converted. He got into trouble down there. Um, He fell for a young woman, and she fell for him, but he wasn't really ready to commit. And so he kept stringing her along, stringing her along, and she got angry and went away for a few months and came back married to another man. And when she presented herself for Holy Communion, guess what he did? He excommunicated her. He refused to give her the sacrament at the altar. Now, in that day, that was a serious matter because this was the state church. This was the church of the province. And so they sued him for libel. He had to flee Georgia. He came here. (laughs) He didn't do very well here either. So he went back to England. Well, on one of his transatlantic trips, he encountered a group of Moravian Christians. And they were fascinated by his knowledge of the scriptures by his grasp of theology. But one of them said to him, it seems to me that you know a great deal about God, but you do not know God. And that struck, stuck in Wesley's crawl. He didn't know what to do with it. Because he knew they were right. He knew a lot about God, but he didn't know God personally. And one night he said, I was wandering through the Aldersgate section of London I was just despairing of my eternal destiny. And he said, I wandered into a tiny little chapel. And there I heard someone reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he said, as I heard that message of justification by grace through faith, I felt my heart, listen to this, strangely warmed. Strangely warmed. And that was the moment of his conversion. Up to that point, he had done nothing, nothing of consequence for the Lord. Now, what is interesting 
is that his brother Charles had also become a clergyman. And Charles had been a complete failure as well. A week before, he had that same experience, a strange warming of the heart and an understanding of the gospel for the first time. Now, you know the story of John Wesley. He went out, and he would eventually become the greatest evangelist in English history. What happened to Charles? Charles was musically inclined. He had never written a single piece of music up to that point. From that moment on, he would go on to write 6,500 hymns. Among them, some of our most famous, Hark the herald angels sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, My dear Redeemer's praise. What had happened to these men? God, the Holy Spirit, had come and warmed their hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he warms a person's heart. Now the third symbol that came, of course, was the symbol of tongues. They were fiery, but they were tongues. And if you want to learn more about the gift of tongues, a very controversial gift in many respects, you're going to have to come back next week. (laughs) Because we only made it through the first two today. But that's who the Holy Spirit is. That's what he comes to do. And here's my question for you. Have you ever had that strange warming of the heart? Be honest. You know, many people go through their whole lives knowing a great deal about God. I had seminary professors that knew a great deal about God. But many of them, I dare say, never really knew him. Christianity is not about knowing about God. Even the devil believes in God. It's about having a personal relationship with him. It's about God the Holy Spirit breathing his life into you so that you become a living being. If that's never happened to you, it'd be my greatest pleasure to introduce you to Jesus Christ personally. So you can make an appointment with me anytime. I will always make time for that. But if it's already happened to you, then your job is to go out and introduce others to Jesus Christ, that they too might have what you've had. That strange warming of the heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and you breathe yourself into us, that we become living beings. Otherwise, we are just like spiritual zombies, physically alive but spiritually dead. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and pour yourself out on this congregation that you would convert the hearts of the unconverted and inspire the converted to a greater and more dedicated service, that you would warm our hearts, fire our imaginations, and use us for your glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you.